bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and Aaron is off this week, everybody. So you have me, but I brought a couple of friends. Um, so first of all, we have Pamela Upal, who is uh, who works with the Ontario Nonprofit Network, and we have Amar Nijawan. So from Oxfam Canada, now they're here to walk us through the feminist scorecard, which is um, an, an, a piece of analysis that they do every year um, that looks at uh, especially federal government um, uh, programs and whether or not they're and how feminist they are in nature, uh, what is missing, what the government got right. And we're just going to have a discussion on um, basically analysis and how, and really talking about feminist analysis. Also note that today is the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. I suggest that we start um, consuming racially diverse content. I'm going to start with an icebreaker with you too. It doesn't have to be racially diverse content, but what is the content that you consume? What do you read digitally um, regularly? Yeah, I'm happy to go first. Um, thanks for having me, having us, Erica. This is um, going to be a really fun conversation and fan of the podcast. In terms of, so it goes into what I, content I consume, you know, podcasts like Bad and Bitchy, I find are really important because like you said, or what we're going to talk about is, you know, the type of media and information and perspective and analysis that centers different perspectives, especially in Canada um, itself. So shout out to Bad and Bitchy for, for doing that. Um, you know, apart from reading the news as much as you can these days, um, you know, it's, it's organizations and uh, I'm shouting out to Pam because I think we've talked about this. Um, the Didi Hood uh, is a group um, based out of Toronto, of South Asian women. Actually, it's based, um, based in Toronto, but across Canada, South Asian women who are really talking about better representation and journalism in the media. But the whole network within uh, Didi means sister um, in a bunch of South Asian languages, Hindi, Punjabi. And um, through that network, I've come across so many amazing writers um, who I follow. Also, they put out a great newsletter every month featuring um, South Asian women and gender diverse uh, creators from across the country. Um, so it's kind of outlets like that that I try to gravitate to that make uh, consuming the daily news and Main Street outlets a little bit more palatable. Yeah, I'm glad I asked this question. I was like Googling. I'm like, <laughs> I, need, I need to know. Okay, Pamela. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about what Emmer was saying. Um, what do I consume? I mean, unhealthy, I'm not going to lie, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and I open that up in the mornings, even though I, should, I know I shouldn't be. And I like following a lot of like local folks. Um, mm -hmm. So I follow, um, there's an organization that I support. In, I'm from Brampton, Ontario. So from Brampton, um, Laudlia means daughters in Punjabi. And it's just about uplifting Punjabi daughters and women and young girls. 
Um, and I, I just like to follow strong, influential women. Um, so whether it's their founder, um, listening to sort of seeing what's happening on that end, local news, I like following like the Bremtonist or, you know, the pointer. It's a really, really great um, sort of news organization that's come out of Peel, which is Brampton, Mississauga, and Caledon, and really reporting on local issues and local news that don't necessarily make it to like CBC or um, City Pulse. Um, I also am a big Twitter person where like Amara, I'll like discover new people. I'm more recently have discovered this writer. Her name is Ramnik Johol. I think she's from Surrey or like Vancouver area, and she's an editor-in-chief for I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'll just spell it out. It's 5X Fest um, and writes like really great analysis on South Asian women, second generation South Asian women's issues. Um, and she's always like tweeting really cool stuff. So yeah, and not to be basic, but I also read the New York Times daily every day <laughs> to get my sort of sense of what's happening around the world. And I like how they frame stuff. So yeah. My um, iCloud inbox is just stuffed with newsletters. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as you said Instagram, I found this account called Story of Our Names. Okay. Mm. And it's showing how identity is tied up in one's name by sharing the experiences of immigrants and migrants navigating multiple cultures and languages. Oh, this cool. is such a dope dope account I'm gonna put it in chat nice please do I want to follow this yeah. yeah so now that we've got that out of the way um so take us through I guess how long has the feminist scorecard been around what was what contributed to the genesis of this just take us through a little story about it yeah so from what I've been told, I've been at Oxfam for about less than two years, but this feminist scorecard has been uh, being published annually since 2015. Um, the genesis really came out of the fact that, you know, 2015 seems like a whole lifetime ago, but we had this um, younger Justin Trudeau who was making all of these promises um, in the name of feminism um, in terms of how we're going to sort of see policy changes in Canada. And I think especially coming out of a Harper era where mm -hmm. women's rights organizations were like systemically defunded and feminist policymaking wasn't even a afterthought um, or a primary thought. Um, you know, I think people in Canada, but especially folks in the women's movement got excited about this prospect of a, of a different type of government. But at the same time, you know, women's rights advocates aren't uh, new to hearing great language and rhetoric being used, but not seeing things actually followed up on. So the mm -hmm. idea of the feminist court guard came out of the idea to how do we hold these, you know, platform promises, these mandate letter promises, these policy promises, and these announcements to account. Um, and Oxfam's work, um, the feminist scorecard is broken up into, I believe, 10 sections this year, but it really kind of captures the range of work that we cover, looking at gender issues um, across different aspects in Canada. But we also, it's kind of unique because, you know, Oxfam is a global organization um, and is quite, you know, big and sort of a movement for you know change outside of Canada so we talk about the global aspect of it too um, on sections around international development but also um, like humanitarian responses and how Canada is faring you know from its feminist perspective um, in its global actions as well so that's kind of how it came about in 2015 and um, it's it's evolved over the years and um, it's been a 
good benchmark for our analysis, but also a very helpful engagement tool um, because you know we we use this to sort of engagement both ways. You know, one with the broader community, um, with other civil society organizations, small NGOs, grassroots organizations. Pam helped me out writing the section on the care economy, and Pam is such a like leader and powerhouse in the community. So it's not something that's just done by ourselves. We really reach out to allies, advocates, people who are working on this issue that aren't just us, but it's also a useful engagement tool because it's how we, um, you know, start, continue, and prompt a lot of conversations we have with MPs at the federal level. Um, like you mentioned earlier, the Feminist Court Guard does uh, look at policies, actions at the federal level, which, as we know, isn't everything because a lot of change and a lot of policies that affect, you know, women and racialized folk and everybody happen really locally and municipally, which is why I'm so, and provincially, um, which is why this scorecard doesn't cover everything, but it's a great um, engagement tool with, with MPs um, who, uh, you know, can see very clearly where things are scored and also the progress of certain types of bills and announcements that seem very big in the moment, but like, how are they being followed up on? How are they being resourced? Who's monitoring it? Well, I think that's very important work because what happens a lot of the time is that we get an announcement and not the follow-up. And um, the follow-up is important. <laughs> it, uh, you know, it is also a way to see how this, the process of the system works. And so I'm glad that you have, you know, sort of kept an eye on that. Um, so Pam, uh, can I call you Pam, by the way? Yeah. Or is it Pamela? Sure. No, Okay, Pam sorry, <laughs> sorry. I should have asked you that earlier no, too. No, no, no. We're <laughs> <laughs> taking so many liberties. <laughs> so, it's all good. So you are from the Ontario Nonprofit Network. Tell us a yeah. little bit about the, the network. Um, as I mentioned before, I've quoted you. I've quoted Oxfam too, yeah. but I've quoted you like a long time ago. And yeah. sorry, it was so long, but, <laughs> but, but that's how I found out. Like sometimes what happens is I'm looking for, because I, I laid in a lot of my pieces with research, mm -hmm. with, uh, I don't just talk shit. I actually go and like dig into stuff and yours, I think it was a report two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe, did I have to do a gender diversity? I can't remember, but I remember thinking I need to bookmark this, this site so I can come back to it. So nice. I was totally <laughs> happy when, when um, you were added on to the roster. So tell us about Ontario nonprofit network. What's the work that you do? What do you hope to achieve? That kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Emmer, for thinking of um, me and ONN to be part of this. Um, so like, my name is Pam. I'm the Director of Policy at the Ontario Nonprofit Network, ONN for short. Um, and we are a membership-based network organization in Ontario, in Toronto, Ontario. And really our focus is to create an enabling public policy environment for nonprofits. And when I say nonprofits, I'm thinking like your community-based organizations, your social service agencies, um, your childcare, your arts 
and culture folks, your little leagues, um, those really community-based, community-governed organizations. Um, and we're sort of that network for that. So we don't do service delivery on the mm -hmm. ground, but mm -hmm. we're one step removed. So what we wanna make sure is that the policy, public policy environment is supportive and conducive for those grassroots, you know, um, community-based local organizations can do what they do best and that's serve communities. And we know oftentimes a lot of these organizations are small, not a lot of staff and really mm -hmm. deep um, in providing services and don't necessarily have the time to do public policy advocacy work. Um, right. And also our sector is so used to thinking about communities and clients we serve versus ourselves as employers or ourselves as workers or ourselves as entities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the role of our, our network. Um, so our, our focus is on thinking about all the policy that comes down, mostly provincially, because that's where we are, um, some federally given opportunities, how it impacts our sector and mm -hmm. sharing that information with the sector. And then, you know, really listening and hearing what's happening on the ground, how are nonprofit workers being impacted? Um, you know, what are regulations impacting the sector? How are we getting our money? How are we contributing to local economic development and funneling those up to government as well? Um, and so when Amr reached out about the feminist scorecard, what's been really great about that relationship, and we've been part of it for the past two years now, is that, you know, we're small fish in this sea. Um, Oxfam is global, Oxfam is big, Oxfam is federal, um, and really well steeped in the care economy piece. Our mm -hmm. network sort of introduction into the care economy has been more recent, just just right before the pandemic and has really deepened in, in during the pandemic. And our entry point has been, you know, a lot of the care economy sits in the nonprofit sector in Ontario. Um, and you can argue um, across the country as well. Uh, and a lot of them are women workers. A lot of them are racialized immigrant workers, sure. um, migrant workers. And mm -hmm. so um, our one of our public policy focus is our people and volunteers in the sector. And so I'm hoping one of the reports you were talking about was Women's Voices that we put out 2018. I'm really thinking deeply about, you know, how do we have high quality, decent work for women working in our sector. Um, almost 80% of the sector in Ontario and across Canada consists of women workers. Um, so all to say that sort of led us into the care economy piece, which I know we'll get into, um, but being able to contribute to Ummer's work and Oxfam's work gives us and um, share a little bit piece of our perspective, which is very Ontario based, nonprofit based, um, a very particular lens. Um, and also for us to see what's happening federally and globally, which is why I think Oxfam's work is so, so important and critical because our eyes right. and ears can't be everywhere all the time. Well, I think the care economy work. Um, so here's what I've in researching another piece I was writing. What's happening in Europe is that the far right is using social supports to um, peel off support from labor unions, progressives, that kind of thing. Um, and the tension that they're exploiting is that care economy, that precarious work that we've seen more and more of, that women that, that are employing more and more women single mothers especially. Um, and what's happening is that they're using that to put a wedge between, in, in sort of racialized politics between white women and um, women of color, migrant workers, uh, writ large, and that kind of thing. So it's really, really important that we get, do something in the care economy so that that kind of trend doesn't continue here 
So I just wanted to put that out there on today's elimination for or day of elimination of racial discrimination. So let's get into the care economy. And first of all, let's start out with the I'm going to start out with the basics because I feel like sometimes we need to ask basic questions. So here's my basic question. What constitutes the care economy? Of course, childcare is one. Um, I would guess LTC, uh, long-term care homes is another. So your PSWs maybe? A childcare worker, seniors care, um, seniors care across, right? So long-term care, but also home care, community mm. care. So like um, PSWs, PSWs who go into the home to care yes. for folks who are aging in place um, and for other reasons. And even like your meals on wheels, people who deliver those services. Um, I would also add uh, disability support workers. Right. Mm-hmm. DSWs would be a big part of the care economy. Uh, that's the direct care piece, like those that deliver direct care to folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can argue, you know, gender-based violence services are care work or right. um, people who help new immigrants settle in, in different regions is also care work or people who, you know, help others find work and employment and sort of coach and guide them through that, um, especially if they have barriers could be considered care work. Uh, so a lot of like my work has been about, of course, situating and um, thinking about direct care work in that way, but also thinking about what would it mean to broaden that example of care work and the care economy and how many more women workers that would bring into it. And what would that broadening look like? Like, what would you include in that broadening? Yeah, I w- well, gender-based violence services, yeah. uh, women-led organizations, uh, that's, I would consider care work, um, immigrant and settlement and refugees services, addictions and mental health. services, um, employment and training. Um, So thinking about all those other different parts of social service supports um, that aren't necessarily direct care, um, Mm -hmm. but would contribute to that uh, would be part of it. I know others like uh, have also included healthcare and education, like the traditional Mm -hmm. public sector service piece, um, Mm -hmm. which of course is part of it, but uh, um, yeah, I'll leave it there. But um, if you wanted to add something. Yeah. Um, No, you did a great job in sort of explaining like care is a really interesting term and it's used in a variety of ways. And sometimes it like blurs different distinctions. But when we talk about the care economy, yeah, we're talking about these, you know, sectors of work that we can sort of see and measure in our economy that, you know, this role of of care is given. But something that Oxfam also talks about is, you know, the care economy also speaks to the amount of unpaid, unrecognized care labor that is conducted not just in the sort of public sphere but in the household that essentially allows our whole society to function Mm -hmm. um and you experience it differently in like northern industrialized countries like canada you know where you have a huge sort of like supposed welfare state there to sort of provide social services to kind of alleviate some of the sort of care burdens that happen at the household level and, and shift See, I don't like using the word burden. Um, I'm trying to yeah. correct that as well. How yeah. do we equitably shift care responsibilities? It's not that we want less care in the world, but how can mm-hmm. care responsibilities be shifted equitably between from women to men, but also from the household to the state? You know, mm. why is it that globally, um, let me find the statistic for you, you know, before COVID-19, mm-hmm. 42% of working age women said they couldn't actually do their paid work because of how much unpaid, you know, care and domestic responsibilities they have at home, 
42% compared to 6% of men globally. So the amount of sort of unpaid reproductive labor that, again, mostly women in this world experience, mm -hmm. yet from taking care of your children, taking care of your family, taking care of your community, like the drudgery of daily work in contexts where that infrastructure isn't available. So the other piece, and we can go into this, and Pam knows so much more about this. Is Let's also, go into it. This is, this yeah. is not linear. Care, care as, is as Mona El-Tahawi said, <laughs> linear is a phallic symbol. And I was like, yes, it's all going to be dynamic from now on. All right, y'all. That is the end of our subscribers preview for this week's podcast. As always, if you want to hear the full podcast and also access the show notes, because there's a lot of like extra um, research material, extra reports, extra surveys, extra all sorts of links and information for you to peruse, but you have to be a subscriber. So go to badbitchypodcast.substack.com to subscribe to the pod. Catch you all at Misogynist of the Week. Ciao! My bitch is bad and bullshit.